I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 111 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times news and politics podcast. This week we're going to talk about Seattle's big city council elections. Ballots are going out this week and they're due on August 6th. And also joining us for the conversation is KNKX's Simone Alisea, who helps us every week with the podcast and sometimes jumps on with us. Thanks for uh, joining us, Simone. Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear from Dan, Seattle Times City Hall reporter, about what is going on in this race. How, just, can you set the scene for us? How did we get here? What's going on? Uh, Why do we care so much about this? Sure. Well, for one thing, this is the second time ever that Seattle is going to have city council elections by district, by geographic district. So in 2013, voters approved a change to move seven of the nine city council seats to district representation. Before that, for something like 100 years, they were all citywide seats, all at-large seats. And so in 2015, all nine city council seats were up for election, and the seven new district seats were also up. But that was the first time. And so two years later, we had another election for the two remaining citywide seats, And this, four years later, in 2019, is our first time to have a second go at district elections. So this is the first time that incumbent district council members are up for re-election running on their district records. And so it's basically like a test of this system. That's one of the things it is. Now, interestingly enough, you know, there are seven of these seats. For, For four of the races, there won't be a test because four of the seven district incumbents uh, decided not to run again for re- for re-election. Uh, there are only three incumbents running this year. And that's what's notable also about this cycle, right? You mentioned the incumbents bowing out. Obviously, there was polling issues for them. A lot of people have some discontent about some issues in the city, including, I think, maybe, you know, homelessness and other is- tax issues and other issues that are related that we're going to get into. Remind us, though, of those incumbents, you know, who bowed out and why. Sure. Uh, let's see if I can even remember the order it went in, although that might be It happened difficult. pretty rapid fire. It yeah. happened pretty rapid fire. So I think, well, I won't do it in order because I actually can't remember at the moment. But uh, Sally Bagshaw is the currently the District 7 uh, council member representing downtown uh, South Lake Union, Queen Anne, Magnolia. And she's been a council member for a number of years um, you know, was a longtime uh, prosecutor before that. And for her, it seemed like maybe just time to, to hang up the boots and, um, and retire. She dropped out fairly early on. So did um, uh, council member Rob Johnson. He was just uh, in his first term. So he didn't even, and he resigned early in April, stepped down. Yeah. Short timer. And he he didn't finish his term. He went to go work for uh, for the NHL Seattle franchise. He has their transportation uh, policy planner. But uh, he, yeah, so he he was just a first timer representing District 4, which is Eastlake, Wallingford University District in Northeast Seattle. And he had said at the time that he only wanted to do one term. He pushed through the legislation that he cared about the most, which was the uh, uh, urban village up zones, um, zoning changes across Seattle to allow for more density uh, with some affordable housing requirements. And he, you know, uh, got a, caught a lot of flack for a number of different issues in his district, but including 
uh, this big sort of contentious debate about a bike lane along uh, 35th Avenue Northeast. And he has, you know, some some young children. And it was just kind of like, I'm sick of this. I'm I'm giving up. Uh, We're going to miss the on the job with Rob newsletter yeah, that was weekly jim's newsletter. favorite <laughs> weekly email <laughs> he waited for it with bated breath every week uh, let's see i'll try to make go faster here uh district two council member bruce harrell he's the council president long uh, another like bagshaw a long time council member who had run for mayor at one point and uh, and was mayor for 48 hours for, yeah. for a few days we, was we, a temporary forget. Mayor. <laughs> and a podcast so soon we forget yeah and he, he represents international Chinatown International District, Georgetown, and Southeast Seattle. So, um, you know, Rainier Valley and such. And he, Beacon Hill, uh, you know, he in 2015 uh, almost lost to a challenger, Tammy Morales, who's running again this year. He, he said he was going to bow out shortly before uh, she announced. Um, and then the final person... Is Michael Bryan. Michael Bryan. Oh, Michael how Bryan. How could we forget? Uh, District 6, Ballard, Fremont, Green Lake, um, and Finney Ridge, like Johnson, you know, had caught a lot of flack from certain constituents for various positions he had taken, particularly on things around homelessness. Uh, he, he sought to relax um, uh, camping rules and, and, and uh, try to set up safe lots for RVs and, and things like that. And some of his constituents felt he was not in touch with them enough. Yeah, there were meetings in his district where they're yelling at him. Yeah, and the big, the big sort of overarching thing for these four, and even for the incumbents still running, you know, the biggest thing in local Seattle politics in the last couple of years, uh, aside from former Mayor Ed Murray's resignation, was, uh, was the head tax battle. Uh, last uh, spring and early summer over an employee per employee head tax. And there was just a lot of sort of, you know, uh, that was supposed to fund homelessness and, and, and brought in concerns about homelessness in the city. And there was a lot of furor about that. And all the council members currently are still dealing with the fallout of that in terms of public opinion. You know, I want to I want to hear more about um, who's running, who's not running and, and these personalities. But you, you mentioned the head tax and you mentioned these big issues. Let's talk about that really quick. I mean, there's a lot that people are mad about in Seattle right now. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, homelessness, you know, and housing affordability, uh, which is tied to it, is sort of the big issue. And it. it you know, whether you're sort of on the relative right in Seattle or whether you're on the relative left uh, or whether you're in the middle, you know, there are people who are, uh, you know, say they're sick and tired of seeing, you know, trashy homeless encampments along the freeway and in their neighborhoods. And, and they think that the city um, has let sort of lawlessness spread and things need to be cleaned up and people need to be moved out and on. Uh, and then there's people sort of on the other end of the spectrum who, uh, you know, think it's just a disgrace that we're as a city letting people, um, live in misery and we need to do much more to help them, you know, by taxing the rich and taxing corporations and spending more money as a city government and doing more for people. And then there's people everywhere in between, but everybody is upset and concerned about that issue. Of course, let's remind people as we, as we look at the, the picture, you know, the people who are going to be on the ballot. What about the incumbents seeking re-election? And let's just go quickly through them. It's Shama Sawant, Lisa Herbold, and Deborah Juarez, right? Correct. So, uh, yeah, and just as a re- you know reminder for folks to give them the scale of this. So seven seats up for election, 55 candidates on the ballot between those seven seats. 
And so there's just a lot of people and a lot to keep track of. But yeah, one easy way to break it down is to say, well, three of these seven races ha do have incumbents in them. So District 1, which is West Seattle uh, and South Park Del Ridge, is Lisa Herbold. She's the incumbent. Uh, and uh, then uh, there are just two challengers. Uh, district, so it's fairly, that's the smallest race. Uh, district three is Shama Sawant. She, uh, that's, that's Capitol Hill, the central district, Madison Park, Montlake, Madrona area, and First Hill. And uh, she has five challengers. And then Deborah Juarez, which, who represents district five, North Seattle, uh, has a number of challengers. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, you know, five, something like five. And of, of those, I mean, Maybe it's hard to break down, but who, who do you think is in maybe the most danger? Is it Sawant? I think, yeah, conventional wisdom would say Sawant is the most in danger. She's the most polarizing figure, has been for a long time on the council where she has a lot of hardcore supporters, but a lot of people just, you know, hate her guts. And um, that makes her vulnerable. Also, she's the lone sort of outspoken socialist on the council, and that makes her uh, definitely a target uh, and, you know, and, and she invites sort of that polarization uh, to some extent by the way she goes about her work. And she has lost some labor support, correct? I've been seeing endorsements come out and some unions that had previously endorsed her are kind of moving in a different direction. Correct. She still has, I think, a dozen or more uh, uh, union locals that are backing her, including some big ones like the the teachers union. Um and postal carriers, uh, interestingly enough, but the the uh, big sort of uh, um, umbrella organization for labor unions, AFL-CIO, the Martin Luther King County Labor Council, uh, went with one of her challengers recently, and some of the big unions uh, within that group also. Uh, you know, although there could be an argument potentially as things develop for Lisa Herbold being vulnerable, you know, she pays. She and Juarez both have paid attention in to sort of neighborhoody district issues, constituent issues more than some of their colleagues, and I think that might be one reason why they felt more secure to run again, uh, more confident. Uh, and Herbold is a longtime city council wonk. She knows her stuff. She's hardworking, uh, but she does. Um, she has a challenger who it looks like the. Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce, you know, business interests are going to put a lot of money, independent money behind uh, uh, already and as things develop. And so it could be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, let's let's talk about money. Um, there has been a, a lot of money raised in this race. What First, let's talk about who's raising money. Where are we seeing it go? Uh, well, one of the interesting themes of this race so far has been the role of democracy vouchers. Those are ta uh, taxpayer-funded vouchers. Seattle introduced them. Uh, they're kind of, a, it's the first in the country of its type public financing system where there's a property tax that raises $3 million a year that goes into a fund. Uh, early on in the election cycle, every Seattle registered voter and other residents who want get mailed these, four of these $25 vouchers that they can give to participating candidates of their choice, qualifying candidates of their choice. And we had a dry run kind of in 2017 with the two city council races um, and the city attorney's race, not the mayor's race. But this is the first year where they're really like dominating the way people run. And I think of the 55 candidates, I think more than 40 of them I wrote are using the vouchers. And there's been a lot of money raised through a, the through the voucher system. A lot. There are certain caps uh, 
that you agree to in terms of raising and spending that I won't get into the details of because it gets really complicated. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, uh, you know, dozens, I think, of candidates have raised multiple tens of thousands of dollars in democracy vouchers. And, you know, probably the majority of candidates in this election cycle are using democracy vouchers primarily to fuel their campaigns, not cash, but vouchers. And, and it's not like the voters just sit back passively and send them in. That's the case in some cases. But these candidates are going out and their people are going out and urgent, you know, sort of canvassing people to, well, we'll explain how it works. Can they, can they go to your door and say, will you sign this thing now or can we collect it and I'll bring it in? How does it work? Yeah, it's interesting. So sort of the way it started, it was... Uh, you know, sort of more limited where people were really just, uh, I think the original idea was people to some extent was people would, you know, get the vouchers in the mail, sort of fill them out on their own and mail them back either to the city or to a candidate's campaign. Maybe they've had them ready when a candidate came to the door. Uh, but partly because in the first, the first time this, this, this happened, a lot of people were like tossing their vouchers that they got in the well, mail. Well, because you in get the them recycling. really early, like you get them in like mm -hmm. January, right? Yeah, now For it's a... February, but yeah. yeah, they changed it a little bit. But but yeah, a lot of people were losing them, and so the city realized, well, we need we need to have replacements. Uh, plus, the city this time uh, started an online portal where you can deal with the whole thing online. Now it's a lot more fluid and sort of free, you know, free flowing, where where uh, because there are these replacement fo voucher you know, forms. Um, candidates are coming to the doors when they go knock and canvas with these vouchers, replacement vouchers in hand and say, here, you know, you like what I had to say? Sign a voucher over to me. Or, you know, I, I tagged along with a candidate who was just posted up outside Trader Joe's in the university district with a pile of replacement vouchers. And as people came out with their groceries, he was engaging them in conversation about politics and then saying, Hey, you want to give me 25, 50, 75, a hundred dollars. You can do it by just signing your name. And, you know, I think that th these were just upheld by the state Supreme court, by the way, there had been a legal challenge you wrote about. There was, there has been some concern that there could be some fraud. In fact, there was one candidate I think who was prosecuted uh, a couple years ago for a, what happened there? I, I, she was gathering these, these things sort of fraudulently, right? I, uh, I'm trying to remember the details. I did write about it, uh, and it was interesting. I think what was going on was in order to qualify for the program, you need to have a certain number of signatures uh, and from, from voters in your area, and you also need to have a certain number of small cash donations, like $10 donations, to sort of prove that you're viable to some extent uh, to be collecting taxpayer money. And um, I think that candidate... Uh, the the allegation was that she basically got got this authentic signatures and then used her own cash in lieu of the actual voters' cash to to try to qualify. So it, the fraud wasn't on the the voucher sort of section of it. Of Correct. The actual it was collecting like getting of the in. Vouchers. It yeah. was getting right. in. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so you know, in the big picture, so candidates themselves with their campaigns are raising a lot of money using democracy vouchers. And, and remind us, though, I think you're going to get into the PACs, right? But yeah. our, our contribution limits in Seattle are very low comparatively. Right. So let's see. I think for uh, an individual in these elections, if you're giving uh, a donation to the campaign of a candidate who's not participating in the voucher program, so it doesn't have any special restrictions, you can give $500 if uh, for the voucher candidates, it's $250, at least to start out in the program. So, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of people are relying on democracy vouchers. They've allowed a lot of candidates, I think, who before 
just wouldn't have had a chance to sort of run viable campaigns. And I've had candidates tell me I literally wouldn't have run if democracy vouchers didn't exist. Yeah, Jim uh, Jim just mentioned PACs and work. I do want to get to ind- independent spending, but just you know to wrap up on democracy vouchers this means more voter money right more individuals money uh or at least individuals participating and donating to candidates um obviously it's too early to tell what kind of effect that will have but what are you going to be watching um as far as that goes to what kind of trends are you going to be looking for in the primary in general this year well i mean i think there are you know a handful of candidates that have been relying on the vouchers uh who you know, would have been viable candidates anyway. They're sort of more of the traditional candidates that if they weren't getting money this way, would have gotten money other ways. But there are some candidates who really wouldn't have been as viable without the without the vouchers. And so it'll be interesting in the primary to see whether any of those people advance. Um, and that'll be a sign of, you know, is this, you know, maybe it's a good, you know, just to have more people in the mix. But the real test would be, yeah, whether they can, whether they can advance. But the real big money comes in PACs. Independent spending has been a bigger and bigger part of city politics, as we've written about. And you you wrote a story, I think, with one, one of our colleagues about uh, the Chamber of Commerce and Amazon's role. Obviously, they were really upset with the council's move on the head tax. So what's going on with their PAC and how, how, how much have they raised? I think they've raised close to uh, a million dollars at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, going back to even before the, the head tax debate, you know, that was the tax that the city council adopted and then less than a month later repealed under pressure from business and from, from voters, uh, some voters, you know, they were planning to really targeting the business lobby was targeting this round of elections to try to, to, you know, try to get rid of some of the council members that they saw as being not business friendly enough. Uh, and try to get some more business-friendly candidates on the council. And, and yeah, and the, the head tax debate, you know, I think was part of the reason why Amazon is more involved, but they're already getting more involved, sort of as they, you know, as companies mature and get older, they, I think the pattern is they start to get more interested in politics and including in local politics. And so, you know, this year Amazon has dropped already a, a couple of hundred thousand dollars into the, into the game. I sensed that Amazon wasn't happy, for example, with when they were doing their HQ2 search around the country and and the opposition in New York sort of led them to back out there. Two Seattle City Council members sort of went to New York and, and praised the resistance there, right? Is that part of what's going on? Maybe, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell, and Amazon's a tough company to, to cover. You know, we've had colleagues on that beat, and it's a tough one, but... It's sometimes it's hard to know how much of the motivation is sort of more political and personal and how much of it is just business calculations. Um, uh, so and I think both things do play play a role, but it's hard to tell. But, yeah, so the you know, the only independent spending that's been reported in the city council primary races so far is by the Chamber of Commerce's pack, this, you know, very deep pocketed pack. And they're spending on uh, in particular candidates in three races you know so they're the only ones that are spending right now they have a lot of money but but you've also written about new packs that have been created um for the city council races and they they might spend more in the general but what what can you tell us about those sure uh i mean you know maybe three come to mind two i've written about or we've written about and one i haven't yet but might just be interesting footnote so uh 
you know, the first sort of new one to pop up was uh, called, I think it's called People for Seattle, That's, some yeah. generic name like that. Uh, it was announced by the chair people that sort of made the announcement were a former mayor and city council member, Tim Burgess, uh, who was, you know, while on the council, kind of considered a sort of more, a more conservative for Seattle council member. And uh, he had worked as a police officer uh, at one point and sort of, he liked to sort of um, position himself as like the adult in the room type of voice. And people could agree or disagree with that. And then the other person was Taylor Huang, who is um, a small business owner, head of uh, a small chain of pho restaurants uh, and who's been sort of, you know, a, a critical at times of, of things like the increase in the minimum wage impacts on small businesses. So they formed this pack and said, you know, we're for people, progressives with practical solutions. Um, they, they, they wanted to distance themselves from the Chamber of Commerce and say, we're just regular people. Now, as it turned out, they had some individuals, you know, regular folks donating, but they also had a lot of, you know, business leaders donating to their to their pack, and they recently came out with endorsements that are very similar to the chamber endorsements. Uh, and let's, uh, you know, we haven't really got into naming some of the challengers, and, and it's unwieldy because there's so many, but maybe uh, can you say who were some of the candidates in some of the districts that, that the chamber pack or that the business community views as maybe uh, more friendly to them and who might be some of the I mean, maybe more viable challengers or candidates in the open seat races? Well, so far, the three candidates that the chamber pack is spending big behind are Philip Tavel, who's an attorney challenging Lisa Herbold in District 1, Mark Solomon, uh, who is a um, crime prevention coordinator with the police department challenging, or challenging no one but running in District 2 for Bruce Harrell's open seat. And Egan O'Ryan, who is uh, was until recently the executive director of the Capitol Hill Chamber of Commerce and is challenging Shama Sawant. Uh, so those are the, the three so far that the chamber apparently thinks it's good to put money behind. Big money. One maybe side question. Has the chamber got behind uh, one person who's running again? I think it's very interesting because I covered her at City Hall. Former council member Heidi Wills is trying to make a, a comeback run. In, in which it was in district a, six, I believe, right? Mike O'Brien's district. Correct. And she, uh, of course, lost an election. I mean, more than a decade ago, uh, and it was surrounding. It was a few issues, but it, people recall the so-called Strippergate scandal, where she got involved in some campaign money from a, you know, sort of the ill-reputed Colacurcio family, and was doing a favor for either them or a former governor. Anyway, is she somebody? I I, I noticed that she seems to be running a pretty energetic campaign. Is she somebody the business community is backing, or what do you make of her chances in that field? Yes, uh, the business community is backing her, along with um, another candidate in that race, Jay Fatih, um, who's a, a doctor. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, there'll be more to write about her if she uh, makes it through to the general election. But y- y- you might think that, oh, you know, this is a retread, uh, you know, who, you know, was was voted out of office years ago under not the greatest circumstances you know what chance would she have but you know the the race for mike o'brien's open district six seat has drawn i think 14 uh, a dozen or 14 candidates it's you know there's so many people it's wide open not every candidate is super strong 
And here comes in Heidi Wills. She knows how to run a campaign. She's done it before. She knows, you know, the city issues. She has, she knows politics and sort of, you know, figured out a way to run that she thought would work for her. Some people, you know, in the power city power structure, at least she's a known quantity. So I think those things have meant that she's, you know, more viable than you might have thought uh, just offhand. So you talked about the the business pack and this and this other the people for Seattle, which kind of va- vaguely aligns with with business interests. Are there are there anybody raising money sort of on the the lefty side of Seattle politics? Well, there was a uh, a pack that formed uh, fairly recently. Um, uh, it, this gets into the real inside baseball, but the <laughs> chambers pack is called Civic Alliance for a Sound Economy Case, and these other folks, uh, yeah, case formed a pack called Civic Alliance for a Progressive Economy to sort of thumb their noses at them uh, and and say, you know, that's the business lobby, we're for the workers. And it's this was formed by Working Washington, which is a labor-backed advocacy organization, by Nick Hanauer's outfit. Nick Hanauer is a, you know, a lefty uh, rich guy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Cape versus case. Yeah, and then um, uh, One America votes uh, uh immigrant rights organization they yeah they found this this pack called cape they've been doing sort of candidate ratings and that's about all they've done so far but um you know see themselves as sort of the counterweight to the chamber and the last one i was going to mention very briefly it was interesting to see pop up this pack called moms for seattle uh and it's a uh, a group of mothers uh and affiliated people who um are concerned about sort of public safety, uh, you know, issues, and it'll be interesting to see if they play a role at all, too. Speaking of uh, leftists, um, we have uh, someone on the council who who isn't a declared socialist. Uh, her party is, is Socialist Alternative. Um, and you recently wrote about um, sort of the ideological question of these council races, right? And I am curious to know if, you know, are there other socialists who are running? What is the what is the the feel for for socialism in this in this council race? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I I decided to write about it because even though probably a very small percentage or a relatively small percentage of Seattle voters would say I am a socialist and I belong to a socialist organization and I vote that way, um, a lot of people you know would be sympathetic to some socialist ideas and uh, you know socialist things have been really important in local politics recently, largely because of Shama Sawant. Um, and this is, seems like to me a really important election for, for that movement to the extent that there is one, you know, there are different strands of it for sure. Uh, but it's interesting to think about when Sawant was elected in 2013, that was a huge deal nationally, like a out and out Trotskyist socialist uh, candidate being elected for public office in the United States of America. Now, since then, you know, we've seen we saw the rise of Bernie Sanders, who calls himself a Democratic Socialist in 2016 election, presidential election. We saw the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, win last year in New York. The Chicagoans in Chicago uh, recently elected a bunch of Democratic Socialists to their city council. And so the question now is Seattle kind of was on the forefront a couple of years ago, is it going to stay on the forefront or is it going to fall behind or, or is there going to be a backlash or has Sawant poisoned the well for socialism here in Seattle? And so the state of play is of these seven races, uh, there's Sawant, 
uh, running for re-election. There is Sean Scott, who's a Democrat Socialist of America endorsed and organizer uh, candidate running in District 4. And there are some other candidates with sort of ties uh, to Democrat Socialists, but not with organization and behind them and endorsement. So there's really these two uh, sort of out and well, out folks. And there's a Socialist Workers Party work uh, candidate, I think, who's running. But I think you mentioned that he probably doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, he hasn't raised Those, any money, doesn't really, yeah. And we've had a long history in Seattle, those sort of old line socialist organizations, people running in various races, typically they don't do too well. Yeah, and, you know, there are plenty of candidates who on a lot of their positions would be, you know, when it actually came to city council votes would vote very similarly to Sawant and, and Scott, who don't see eye to eye and everything, you know, a lot of the city council votes now with Sawant are nine to zero. But in terms of sort of branding and sort of advancing what's go, you know, the, the, the movement, you know, so to speak, what happens with those two candidates and those two races could, you know, make or break things for a while. So let's kind of swing back to something we talked about at the beginning. You know, this is the second district elections for, for Seattle. And in a way it's, the most interesting one we've had so far because it's really people trying to defend their records and people kind of carving out what it means to represent a geographical district as opposed to those at-large positions. So, you know, one would think that this would make individual district neighborhood concerns important in, in various races. And you, you dove into one of the districts, into one of the neighborhoods, Magnolia, in a recent story. Tell us about what you found there and kind of why you uh, pulled out Magnolia as a, as an example of how this, you know, a neighborhood concerns could impact a race. Sure. It's interesting. I mean, like you said, you know, the idea would be that in this round of elections, you'd have a lot of focus on neighborhood specific issues because of the district system um, having its second round. And I think that is going on to some extent. You know, you think about issues like whether light rail is going to be a tunnel or not to West Seattle. You think about issues like that 35th Avenue Northeast bike lane in, in District 4 in Northeast Seattle. But, you know, a lot of the things that voters care about sort of cut across districts. You know, it may be they care about the homeless encampment down the street in their district, but the overall issue is the same. Uh, so I was kind of looking for, you know, what's a, what's a district or what's a neighborhood that really illustrates this neighborhood stuff to the extent that it exists. And I kind of settled on Magnolia, especially after going to a candidate forum there put on by the Magnolia Community Council because, you know, it was interesting. Uh, one of the big issues in Magnolia is the Magnolia Bridge is aging, was was found to be at risk after the 2001 Nisqually earthquake. And there's a question, should the city uh, or, or should the should the bridge be completely rebuilt kind of the way it is, but new, which would cost a lot of money, like up to $420 million, I think, or should there be some cheaper alternative? And the people, especially on one half of Magnolia near that bridge, really care about the bridge and want it replaced, a lot of them. And so I went to this forum and I, I was keeping a tally of how many times candidates mentioned the bridge. Right? <laughs> and yeah. it was like, you know, more than a dozen times. Uh, and then I kind of felt like, yeah, Magnolia would be interesting to look at. You know, how are you seeing candidate campaigns change at all mm-hmm. in terms of their appeals? Are they talking about more very specific neighborhood issues? Are they getting into trouble if, for example, they don't know they're caught off guard about some important issue in the in the area? I think, yeah, for sure. In, you know, in that story I talked about, the candidates running in District 7, which includes Magnolia, really do have to know about like those Magnolia neighborhood issues. I think they have to know, they have to care uh, about what 
what those voters who care about those issues think. You know, I, I asked King County Elections to help me with this. It was kind of interesting. I was wondering sort of, you know, Magnolia is only one of one neighborhood in that district. How much does it really matter? Could 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 a candidate, you know, you know, ignore Magnolia and still right win still, Queen Anne, win downtown, okay. win yeah. South Lake Union? Yeah, and uh, so King County Elections gave me some numbers from the 2017 general election, which was a little bit different, but it was an off-year election, and uh, what it turned out when I had them break it down, Magnolia people represented 22 percent of the voters in District 7, but cast 27% of the ballots. So their their high turnout rate allowed them to sort of punch above their weight. And, and that could be even more marked in the primary, in a summer primary where, you know, older homeowners are going to show up at a higher rate. And, you know, so I think it really, it really matters. You know, they could end up casting a third of the votes in that district, and you can't ignore that. So, yeah, some of the some of the candidates in that race are from Magnolia. Remind us who are some of the top candidates in that race. Uh, <laughs> that's that's hard to say, but you know maybe you know, maybe three front runners would be Jim Pugil, former police chief, uh, Andrew Lewis, who's a um, younger but assistant city uh, uh, city attorney with uh, labor support, and Michael George, who's sort of a downtown real estate guy. Uh, but you know there are also a number of candidates who aren't those three who are from Magnolia and are like literally one candidate said, my campaign motto is Magnolia for Magnolia. Like she's like, I might be able to get, if I can get my neighbors to vote for me, a couple thousand of my neighbors in the race with, I think 10 candidates, I could just get through the primary just based on that. So, you know, it's interesting in that way. You got to be tired. Like soon you won't be asked anymore. Who's the top candidate in a 55 candidate prime, like seven yeah. different primary races? Well, it'll be nice. It'll get narrowed down, right? It'll get narrowed down. Yeah. Top two vote getters in each district will advance. So there'll be 14 still. But That's much better than 55. That's that's fewer pr- than presidential yeah. candidates, right? So <laughs> True. <laughs> Barely. And so, I mean, that's a good point to wrap up. So remind people again, ballots are coming out this week. Basically, if you're in Seattle now, you get to vote in one of these races, not, not the others. And they're due by August 6th. Right. And, you know, we have a lot of coverage, uh, things you can look at on SeattleTimes.com. We're also going to have a series of of sort of uh, summary stories about the districts coming up in the newspaper and print for our print readers. But we have a lot online. We have a, a candidate meet the candidates guide where you can, you know, see bios and photos of all the candidates and links to their websites, a little bit of information about their campaigns. Uh, we did a yes, no, or maybe Q&A for each district with every candidate where we reached out and asked them the same questions so you can compare their positions. Uh, you know, you can you can find stories about the races uh, on our website as well. So there's a lot, lot to read. All right. Thanks. Thanks. That's all for episode 111 of The Overcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan, Simone, and myself for talking. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thanks to KNKX for having us in the studio as usual to record. If you support the independent, locally-owned journalism that makes this podcast possible, please visit seattletimes.com backslash support. Hit us up with feedback and with suggestions for future guests on Twitter at dbeekman at jim underscore bruner. You can email us at seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. And until next time, have a cloudy day. Mm-hmm.